things. Okay, you want to see some pictures? Yeah, I do too. Um, the other day, me and Paula had to have our passports redone, um, which means we had to get our pictures taken again. They were out of, not out, well, they were out of style, but they're out of date for sure. Um, and looking at the picture I had more than 15 years ago, it kind of refreshed and reminded me about where I came from, right? So I'm going to show you some pictures. Go ahead and throw the picture of me up there. This is me in 1992, August of 1992, <laughs> right? You see that? The swashbuckling version of me. Notice that my tie and my suspenders match. Are y'all noticing that? Which was red hot in 92. Look how it actually matches the curtains behind me on the wall. And the <laughs> I got the nice Aquanet thing going with my hair in the blow dryers before Aveda was actually really all that cool. So, all right, now, now turn the picture to my wife. I did get permission to do this. Go ahead and put my wife up there. Look at her. Yeah, right? <laughs> Notice the, the flowing red locks and the, you know, the photographer said, now turn your head a little bit to the left and smile. And she did, and they snapped the picture. But are you ready for my favorite, my favorite picture? Go ahead and put it up there. This is Chase and Charlie. <laughs> Chase, raise your hand so it settles in. There he is. No hair, big austere beard. A little bit country, a little bit rock and roll we have going on right here. <laughs> so... Now, it's fun to look at those, but you could, please take them down. We won't, we won't let it be a distraction for the rest of the service. But no, 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 no. Take, take them all the way down. Put something very spiritual up there, some sort of background. Um, but whenever we, whenever I look at those pictures, it reminds me of who I really am. Now, I look different now, obviously. We all look different now. Think a little differently now. We've learned a lot through experiences, a lot of pain, a lot of high moments, a lot of low moments. But really, I look at the eyes of that person in the picture, and it's really still me. In fact, a lot of it, a lot of those pictures remind me of where I came from, who I really, really am. The reason I show those pictures is because the passage we're going through today is a little bit of a reminder, just like those pictures were for me and my wife. And it's a reminder of who we really, really, really are in the Lord. And I think it's important. And it's really what James is going for. When James is talking, and we're going to pick up where we left off last week, James is actually speaking to a group of Christians in the dispersion. And all that means is, is that over time, Jews had kind of left Jerusalem and gone to the outer parts, right? Um, There's a couple exiles that would scatter them. Some of them went to be with family, some job opportunities, I'm sure, like anything today. These Jews started becoming Christians, right? Scattered all over. That's who James is writing to in this book of James. This is James, the brother of Jesus, the brother of Jude, who also wrote a book. So we're going to pick up where he left off last week. So two weeks ago, we, Kevin kind of talked to us about various kinds of trials and what it looks like to have joy in the midst of them. Last week, we talked about whenever you smack into these trials, stopping and asking God for his wisdom rather than faithlessly wavering between man's wisdom and God's wisdom without any faith. This week, we're going to pick it up a little bit differently. In James 1, verse 9, and if you don't have a Bible, we'll have it up on the screen. It says this, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, and its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Okay, 
So, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and basically let the rich boast in his humiliation. So what does that even mean? (laughs) I mean, I'll be honest, I grow a little impatient sometimes with pithy, little hippie, Buddhist, um, fortune cookie type sayings where someone will say something and then say it backward to make it sound wise or provocative, you know, say something and then I'm going to say it upside down and now it's wise, now I sound real smart. And that's what this feels like to me, to be totally honest with you. But James is really going after something pretty key and pretty heavy. He's tackling something huge for that church, and it's very huge for us. It's actually part of the Bible that we would be really quick to just keep rolling right on through. So we're going to unpack it a little bit today, and it's going to show us Jesus a little bit more clearly today. Um, James is talking to a group of Christians that are struggling through trials as they pertain to finances, wealth specifically, right? Some of the Christians he's talking to might feel a little underneath humanity, um, lowly, poor, discouraged, trodden. Um, Some of them he's talking to, they're kind of wealthier, so they might feel a little bit above humanity, a little self-confident, maybe pompous, maybe insulated. Both groups, both groups have forgotten the anchor and the weight of where their confidence should be. They've forgotten who they were. They've forgotten who they really, really are. And we all do that, by the way. We all do this from time to time. We forget who we really are. We forget what we're really here to do. We forget how long we're here. We forget all of those things. And then small things become much more important than they really should be. Many of you have had these moments. Have you ever had a moment where God just shakes you to the core and reminds you of who you are. I mean, people have them on mission trips. They'll go do disaster recovery, and they'll have these moments where God and his brilliance just kind of zaps us, and you just kind of shake, and you're like, oh my gosh, I've almost forgotten. This is who I really am. I mean, the speed it takes me to blink my eye, a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of that is longer than my time on this planet compared to eternity. I mean, I'm a vapor, and then I'm gone, Right? And why am I here? To enjoy and to glorify God with every fiber of my being. And then I'm gone. I'll be forgotten. In 200 years, they won't even know my name. Right? I'll just be some chiseled out tombstone. And then it all, it's it's almost like perspective comes. And it almost like it resets and recalibrates who we really are. That's what James is doing right here. He's trying to recalibrate them. He's trying to reintroduce them to who they really are. He's almost like, say, it's almost like he's saying, hey, are you wealthy out there? You wealthy? Hey, pretty soon you'll be dead. Pretty soon you'll be dead and faced with the brokenness of who you really were before the cross came to you. You'll be forced with, because these are Christians, you'll be forced with just how mortal you really are. You slipped off your mortal coil. You're no more special than anybody. So remember that. If you're wealthy, pretty soon you'll be dead. Hey, if you're poor, pretty soon you'll be alive, right? You see what he's doing? Are you broken down and hurting today financially? Remember, one day, you'll be sitting at a majestic table where you've been grafted into a royal family, right, with no end. We see this thing he's doing. Hey, are you poor out there, Christians? Let your poverty lead you to the cross. Let it lead you to your reason for exaltation, which is what Jesus has done on the cross. Let your poorness, let your lowliness show you how big God is. Well, how does that work? How does that work? Because God, who was big and majestic, made himself poor, lived, died, and lived again to make us rich from our poverty, right? 
So you see this beautiful, hey, are you wealthy, he says? Let your wealth remind you. Let your wealth remind you of how poor you really are. Let it drive you to the cross. He's saying let your account balance drive you to the cross, drive you to the definition of who you really are because you're just here for a little bit. He's trying to, he's trying to correct their vision, I guess you can say. You know, we need this too. It doesn't always feel like it. But trials, which is what this church, this dispersion was going through, trials can cause us to fixate on what we don't have. It can cause us to fixate on who we aren't rather than on what we do have and who we really are. I mean, here's an example. Um, financial trials. Everyone's in one, right? We're all in one. Different flavors, for sure. And comma might be in a different place, but we all have financial trials. And we know in our minds that if I just had more of whatever the unit is that gets me out of that trial, dollar, pound, chicken, wampum, whatever it is. I mean, I need more currency to get me out of this financial trial. And so what do we do? We fixate. I do it too. We're at a deficit. I need this much to get me out of this trial. So what are my goals? I'll work backward. We'll get the plan together. We'll get it implemented. We'll get out of the trial. I need more dollars. So what we do is we fixate on that. We fixate on money and wealth to get us out of the trials. It's just something that we do. That's what trials do. Talk about it all the time. You know, uh, moan about it all the time, I guess. I mean, just the other day in the laundromat. I mean, listen, if you want some financial trials, go to the laundromat. It's chock full. And there's a guy I hadn't seen in a few weeks. And this, if you don't know, we hand out quarters and we kind of serve people in the laundromat. And this week I said, hey, man, it's been good to see you. I haven't seen you in a few weeks. You know, how are you doing? How are your holidays? <sighs> Could have been better. You know, boss stinks. Car stinks, transmission went out, didn't get the raise, you know, hate Knoxville, hate my life. And, man, you could try to get him off the topic. He's going to take it right back to that topic. He's fixated on it. He's fascinated with the trial. That's what trials do. On the flip side, on the flip side, if you have wealth, you understand that you don't experience trials that maybe most of the world does, right? You don't have to skip meals anymore, right? You can actually fill your car tank all the way to the top instead of halfway full, right? Your trials look a little different than everybody else's. And so you understand that the dollars have insulated you from the trial. So what do you do? You pack as many as you can around you. I'm going to insulate my life. I'm going to save more. I'm going to gather more. I'm going to put more together because I don't want to go back to those trials. You see, James was warning the wealthy of placing confidence and weight in wealth. And I know it's going to be easy for some of you to say, but Luke, that's really not for me because I'm not wealthy. I'm not really wealthy, Luke, so this I'm kind of having a hard time connecting with my, my life with this, with this passage. But let me say, this isn't so much a challenge and a word for the wealthy as it is for the people that chase after wealth to be their Savior and their Lord and their Rescuer. That's what this passage is really about. And let me tell you, poor people do that too. That's not just for the rich. That's for the poor, right? We see this all the time. I mean, besides the fact, if I were to ask in this room, how many of you feel like in this dichotomy of characters between the poor and the wealthy, how many of you feel like you're part of the poor? Most of you would raise your hands. Most all of you would raise your hands. Oh, that's me, brother. I'm poor. 
I'm poor. I'm not the wealthy person, right? I will tell you that wealthy people will freely admit that they don't feel like they're wealthy. Well, how do you know, Luke? I know a lot of wealthy people. And if you were to walk into their house and say, man, you've got some great cars. You've got a beautiful home and a manicured lawn. You know, how does it feel to be wealthy? Of course, no one would ever say that because that's a weird thing to say. It's socially, socially IQ would have to be pretty low to say something like that. But if you did, the people that I know that are wealthy would always go, oh, I'm, I'm not really wealthy. I'm not really wealthy. I mean, God's been good, but I'd, I wouldn't consider myself wealthy. That's what they would say. I've heard him say it, right? But let me tell you, I've got these figures from the World Bank Development Research Group. These are the latest figures as of 2012, assuming that there are 6 billion people in the world, okay? If you in this room make more than $12,000 a year, right, that puts you in the top 12.88% of global wealth. Let me, let me translate that. What that means is if the world were 100 people, you'd be wealthier than 87 of them. Doesn't feel like that, does it, Mr. and Mrs. $12,000 a year? Does it feel like that, that you'd be looking down the road to 87 people that are more lowly than you? If you make $36,000 a year or more, you're in the top 4.33% of global wealth. That's amazing, isn't it? Doesn't feel like it, does it? It does not feel like you'd be looking down at 95 people that are more lowly than you. If you make $50,000 or more, you are in the top 0.98% of global wealth. You are a one percenter. Congratulations. Right? Doesn't feel like it, though. Maybe we're reading this wrong. Maybe we should read this passage a little differently than we do. I don't know. I don't know. One thing I do know, God is not mad at rich people. (laughs) God is not mad at rich people because rich is, it's not a sin. Being rich isn't a sin. Being filthy rich is not a sin. Being filthy, 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 filthy rich is not a sin. Right? Abraham, filthy, filthy rich. Therefore, his sons, Isaac, Jacob, Boaz, David, Solomon, Barnabas, Lydia, all wealthy people. Right? Being rich is not a sin. Chasing riches is a sin. Again, poor people can do that. Right? Even the poor can do that. So on the surface, this looks a little bit like a money issue. It looks like a money passage. But it's not. Don't be mistaken. It's a a God passage. It's a passage about God. I'll tell you what I mean here. In Romans 6.16, you don't have to turn there because I'm going to fly through these. I'm just trying to build a case. In Romans 6.16, it says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves, Paul says, to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. What is he saying? He's speaking very broad. He's saying, listen, if you call that thing Lord, you become a slave to it. You're slapping the shackles on. They're not being slapped on you. It's a voluntary enslavement that you're doing. That's what he's saying. Jesus actually brings it a little bit more into focus in in, uh, Matthew 6, and this is what it says. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Very specific. See, this is why trials can be very good for us. Trials can be very, very good for us because they expose who our God is. Right? They expose how deep our Christianity goes. And by what comes out of our mouth, what comes out of our heart. 
If you really want to squeeze somebody, you really want to find out how deep their Christianity goes, squeeze their finances, kick around on their, their health, their dreams, their goals. These are things you can do to really put a strangle on them and see how deep it really goes. Isn't this what the devil did with Job? Isn't this how he made a run at him? He made a run at him by coming at his, his finances first, then he came at his health, and then he started jeopardizing his dreams and his hopes, right? James is talking to them. He's talking to the dispersion, these Christians, because something, there's persecution that is strangling their finances and they're acting squirrely. They're acting squirrely. That's what, that's what warrants us. Whenever you read the Bible, don't just look at the Bible and say, what is it saying? Also ask yourself, why is it saying it? Something provoked that to be said. There was a reason that this was penned out. Okay. That's what James is doing. He's, this is why it's a great letter to us. He's saying, are you poor? Let that draw attention to how rich you really are. Are you wealthy? Let it draw attention to how poor you really are. He's not just reading off a fortune cookie. He's drawing them back to the gospel. He's drawing them back to the originator of their true, true identity. I mean, do you ever look at your, think about this. Now, I'm asking myself this question too. Do you ever look at your financial trials and let it lead you to being thanks, thankful to God for what he has done for you and me in the gospel? It sounds like a weird question, doesn't it? Sounds like a bizarre and out-of-place question. The answer for most of us is no, I don't. There is a reflex. There is something that comes out of us. There's something that comes out of us whenever financial trials come. Is it usually the gospel? For me, I'd say no. It's not. When I get to the end of the paycheck and see a lot of month left to it, it's hard for me to look at that deficit and say, God, thank you that in you there is no deficit left. Thank you, Lord, that in you there's no deficit, there's no delta left. Treasure has been given to me. I have an inheritance above all inheritances. I'm a co-inheritor of all the treasures, of the presence of God even, whenever the time comes and he collects us all to be his own. I am a wealthy, wealthy, wealthy man. I don't let my trials carry me there because it sounds weird sometimes. But let me, let, me, let me bring some scripture and show you where this actually happens. Look in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. If you have your Bible, you might want to turn to this one. If you don't have it, we'll have it up on the screen. And we have free Bibles back there on the table you could take home with you as well. Um, this is Paul talking to the Corinthian church. Now, most scholars would believe that the Corinthian church would be maybe more of a wealthier church. Maybe not a lowly poor church. Now, this is a church that had already pledged Paul money that he could take up and carry to Jerusalem where they were really hurting. They were really getting pounded, right? So this letter is kind of a letter saying, by the way, I'm about to pick up the money, all right? Now, he could have done any—this is Paul, the biggest megaphone in the kingdom at the time. He could have done anything to get them to be generous with their money. He could have guilt-tripped them. We see that a lot. We see it in churches, he could have pandered to them, stroked their ego a little bit. He could have done anything. But what does he do? What does he do? He brings the gospel. He brings the gospel into focus for this, this one reason. He says this, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking to Christians. You know the grace. You, you guys know the grace. You know what it tastes like. You know what it feels like. You remember that moment where it just slammed you like a truck and you realized, oh my gosh, I've been given new life totally despite me. 
Grace is God doing something beautiful to you, totally despite you. Not because of anything you've earned, but actually opposite of what you've earned. And he's saying, you guys know it. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. What is he saying? It sounds like, again, he's saying something upside down. This is what he's saying. That though he was rich, Jesus was rich. Jesus had all the wealth of the world at his fingertips. He even had the glory and the weight of the glory of the triunity of God, holding counsel with God and God's spirit perfectly. Heavy, heavy weight, heavy, heavy wealth. He had this, and yet he impoverished himself. He became for our sake poor. What does that mean? It means he came through a virgin womb, putting on skin like you and I have, which is quite a step down from where he was at. He emptied himself of the glory that was worth, the, the, the due, the, 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 the glory that was due him. He stepped out of that to step into our creation, taking on all the coughs and the sneezes and the hungers and the headaches and the sleepless nights, taking on all the things that you and I take on so that he would live a perfect life, die on a cross, which does something very beautiful. It takes us in a cracked, impoverished place, sleazy, messed up, liars, victims, victimizers. It takes us who are poor and it brings us wealth by bringing us back into family, back to the table, back to our father, back to our king. It's a pretty big thing he did. The gospel is a pretty grand move. So Paul is doing something. He's saying, everyone look at your account balance. Got it? Now everyone look at the gospel. Now everyone look at the gospel. You see, trials, financial ones, are causing you to chase something. They are. They're causing you to talk about something. Trials are causing you to elevate something, to pronounce something, to worship something, to fixate on something, to be fascinated with something. Where are they leading you? I earnestly need God to help me in my trials lead me to the gospel and remember who I really am remind me of who I really am. Now, this has huge implications for us in community, right? Has huge implications for us in community and on mission. But in community, we can tend to do this thing where we take a warped ruler and external things like like finances and create this weird measuring device and hold it and measure other people by this external thing called finances. We don't really mean to do it, but we we do it. And James, they did it back then too. James is telling them, don't do that. Whenever you're in community, understand that you guys can do life together. You see, this is what I'm talking about. I'll I'll unpack it a little bit. Traditionally, ancient, Jews, Jews that were ancient, traditionally they would look at someone that was poor or lowly or diseased or hurting or on the skids, and they would immediately say that that person is a sinner or has sinned. That was just, it was a, it was kind of a, a correlation that they always drew, right? We see this in John 9. Jesus is walking with his disciples. There's a man born blind. What do the disciples say? Hey, did this guy sin Jesus? Or, I don't know, his parents sin because he was born blind? Who sinned that this is on this guy like this? What does he say? No one has sinned. But the works of God, the glory of God is about to be shown. Watch this. And then he does something very huge. That's very common. That was a very common thing back then. I'll be honest with you. It's very common today, too. It's very common today, too. 
Today we can use the same warped ruler when measuring the people around us. We could see the lowly person. We could see the poor person, the one on government assistance, the food stamper, and immediately in our mind think that person is spiritually immature. They're a spiritual have-not. And if they just had more of this, better performance, more obedience, more faith, more something, then they wouldn't be poor anymore. God would obviously dump his prosperity on them if they just grew a little bit. We would never really say things like that. Maybe some of us would, but we, we tend to think that. It's a little bit of a discrimination we carry inside of us. Conversely, whenever we see someone that's a doctor or a banker or an engineer and they happen to be a Christian too, what do we do? Must be a mature guy, don't we? They all, of sudden, all of a sudden they're spiritually mature because they have a mature position. Well, he's a banker and he's a Christian. Let's make him an elder. <laughs> Let's make him a pastor. Let's put him in charge of something. He obviously knows what he's doing because he's a Christian and he's wealthy. We do that. We, it's something in our brains act like a rudder. It's, it's the measuring stick that they used back then. There's nothing new under the sun. We happen to sometimes think that prosperity and possessions are some things that are given to people because God is pleased with them because of something that they've done. They've performed well enough, so God has given them something, right? But if you don't obey, if you don't jump, you don't do the right things, he takes those things away. And your health, right? He takes all of those things away. This is what we call the prosperity message or some would call the prosperity gospel. And it's rampant today. James would have struggled with the prosperity message, right? I mean, if you would have been in a room and someone would have started preaching it, hey, you've got problems, become a Christian, your cancer will go away, you'll get a better car. Had he heard someone say that, he would have flipped out. Veins would have started popping out. You would have wanted to find the closest exit, you know, That's what he's dealing with in this church. You know, that would drive a wedge into any community, wouldn't it? Any church community. You take something like the prosperity gospel or the message, the prosperity message, it will drive a wedge inside of any community. Anytime you've got a a, a situation where the haves or the have-nots are looking across the aisle and seeing their counterpart, they're never going to relate to each other if they're looking through economic lenses. It builds this weird, weird thing. It drove a wedge back then. It still does today. It builds a wedge today. But Luke, we don't have to really deal with that here, do we? I mean, we're not really in danger of that happening here, are we? We sure are. I mean, we're any church. We're right around the corner. If we don't get something like this in us, this is very, very important for our church. By God's grace, Our church will grow with people that don't look like us. That they're in tax brackets very distal to yours. That they have problems that you've never, I mean, by God's grace, we will look different as we grow as a church. We better learn how to do this. That's to serve Knoxville. We have to learn how to do this better. I mean, here's a, some of you might not feel like you're struggling with this, but let me, let me try to Put it a little bit more in maybe your backyard. Here's a quiz. Please don't raise your hand, all right? It's one of those quizzes. Raise it in your brain. Would you feel more comfortable doing life, when I say doing life, I mean gathering, doing the living room thing, getting with them during lunch all the time. Would you feel more comfortable doing life 
with a group of impoverished homeless Christians, millionaire Christians, or Christians that make the exact same amount of money you do every year? Go. Think about it. Right? Right? Why? Why would we want to do life with people that were just like us? The very common retort would be, because I don't feel like I have anything in common with the millionaire. I don't feel like I have anything in common with the poor, impoverished, lowly person. Right? Here's the secret. You do. You have everything in common. We're both poor. We're both wealthy. God has done something beautiful. The common denominator of community is not economic. The common denominator, what drives community, is what Jesus has done. It's what the work of another has done for us. That's what makes us, us. That's what makes the church, church. That's, what's, that's what makes community beautiful. You have everything in common. Everything. I'll tell you, the answer The answer is for us to be very fluent, not just in preaching the gospel to yourself, which you should be fluent in. You should be good at preaching the gospel to yourself. What does that mean, Luke? It means understanding the cross and what God has done well enough that when you start bumping into the same potholes you bump into, insecurities, fears, depressions, anxieties, things like that, you know what the gospel says to you. You know what it says to you. In, in a language you can understand. Not only do you need to be able to preach that to yourself all the time, you need to be able to preach it to each other. Right? Brother, I know you're lowly. And I know you're having to ask people to put gas in your car every week. And I know you're struggling. And I know you're working three jobs. And I know you're on the ropes. And I know it hurts. But listen, man, you are wealthy. You have all the riches. And I know that might ring hollow, but let me just encourage you. That's what that looks like, that encouragement. I'll tell you, we need to be a church that is better at that. And, and, and listen, I know this sounds basic, and it might even sound corny. Okay, Luke, we're going to walk around and talk to each other like that. I know that might sound a little basic and a little corny, but I will tell you this. If we build a church where the millionaires and the food stampers can't sing the same song in the same building at the same time or have a meal together in the same living room at the same time or, my goodness, be on God's mission to the same city at the same time. If we can't build a church like that, we're not building anything that the lost and hungry world is really hungry for. Because I tell you what, the world knows what a click is. <laughs> it knows what it is. Talk to the Christian, talk to the lost, those who are desperately far from Christ, who are poor and lonely. You know what they think about the church? It's the place with the big steeple, with the big brown doors where all the rich white people go and listen to someone good talk to good people about how to be good, right? And then on the way out the door, we hit the sanitized thing on the wall so we don't get too dirty whenever we touch the dirty people outside. That's what they think. That's what they think. But you talk to wealthy people who are far from Christ. And what do they think about the church? I don't want to go to community because they're just going to tell me that my wealth is a sin and I just got to start getting rid of it. They feel uncomfortable because they're wealthy. But what would it look like for the world to see a church that redefines what wealth is, what poverty is, what trial is? What would that look like? What would it look like if the world saw a church? I'm not talking just this one. I'm talking globally. Think about what this could do. Globally, if the lost world saw a church people, a people of God, see more truth in who they were spiritually than who they were economically. What if, what if the lost world saw 
just impoverished, lowly, broken people on the street with a big, stupid grin on their face. They couldn't get off. Why are you smiling? Don't you know how poor you are? Well, I am. I am poor. That's a fact. I'm not denying that. You know, I'm missing meals, and I eat a lot of ketchup. A lot of packets in my pocket, you know. I don't, I'm sleeping in friends' houses. I'm poor, right? But there is a wealth that surpasses everything you see. I am wealthy. I am wealthy. And I don't know how God's going to finish this part of my life out, but one thing I do know, there is a life that I will live where I'm sitting at a table that I should have no right to sit at. I should be in company with a Savior and a King that I don't deserve to be there. There is wealth for me. I am a wealthy man. Or if the world came up to a, a millionaire and said, Bob, what are you, man, every time I turn around, I mean, don't you want to go to a church where there's like a bunch of millionaires? bunch of people just like you. You're always hanging out with the lost. Or you're always hanging out with the, ho- the homeless, the broken people. They're always living on the street. Well, you know what? They are poor and they are broken. But they are physically what I was spiritually. We're different, but we are exactly the same. What would the world do? It wouldn't know what to do. It wouldn't know what to do. Not just community. But I mean... See how this determines mission as well, like what we just talked about. What about proclaiming God's gospel? Take someone who is broken. Maybe they feel outside of God's grace, outside of God's blessing. They don't feel like, maybe they feel underneath it all. They don't feel like they have any gift from God. Are they really going to preach a gospel about Jesus where they feel like God brings blessing and grace? A lot of them struggle with that. A lot of people that are poor struggle with pronouncing the gospel because they feel like their story messes God's up, right? I mean, how, how, how much do you pronounce God's gospel whenever you're in a trial, right? It's hard to talk to people about blessing and grace and provision whenever you feel like you're experiencing none. It tends to mute people sometimes. What we have to remember is the treasure that's given in salvation is not material. It's residential. It's where we live. It's our kingdom, our father, our king. There is a treasure there. Or else you end up preaching more of a prosperity message. That's true. And on the flip side, not if you're wealthy, but if you chase after wealth, if you chase after riches, and it's very apparent by your life, it's very apparent by the way you sound and you talk, whenever you preach the gospel, it might ring a little hollow, I'll just say. Ring a little hollow to the people who are in the middle of trials and suffering financially. This is what John Piper preached two weeks ago. It was his last time to preach from his own pulpit. He's handed off his church to another man. He had one message left in him, and he preached it. He took a shot at prosperity gospel. He's always taking shots at the prosperity gospel. But he had this to say. It was very beautiful, and it was very timely. So I wanted to read it to you. It's just a couple sentences. He says this, and if you know John Piper, you can envision him saying this. I turn with dismay from church services that are treated like radio talk shows where everything sounds chipper and frisky and high-spirited and chattering and designed evidently to make people feel lighthearted and playful and bouncy. (laughs) He said, I say, don't you know that there are people dying of cancer in this room? Don't you know that some people are barely making it financially? And you're going to create an atmosphere that's bouncy? You know, I could totally see him saying that right there. Bouncy? He says, I just don't get it. 
What they need is to see and feel the indomitable joy in Jesus in the midst of suffering and sorrow. They need the greatness and grandeur of God over them. He's saying promise them riches. Don't promise them the wrong riches. That's what he's saying. As he goes on to talk about it, he says this. You shouldn't ever attract anyone to Jesus through the prosperity message because if they get attracted, they're not coming to Jesus. They're coming to the stuff and the one who can provide it. And then he goes on in a mocking tone and says, Thank you very much, Jesus, for giving me what my fallen, selfish, sinful heart always lived for anyway. Right? It's true. It's the prosperity message. But we need to be a church that is truly a band of missionaries that do redefine things like trial, wealth, who we are, where we came from, why we're here. The world needs to see a church like that. That doesn't base its identity on its performance and provision, but bases its identity on the performance of another and the provision that came by another, the work that came by another, the plan that worked out that came by another. That that would be the root and the stump and the foundation of who we are as a church. That's what it needs to see. I'm not poor, but I am rich, but I'm not rich, I'm also poor. That makes no sense at all, and it makes all the sense in the world. Right? Jesus gave me wealth in his poverty because sin made me impoverished. Sin made me poor. But my place in royalty, it's not denied. It's not denied or granted because of me. It's because of the work and the pushing and the plowing and the brilliance and the benevolence and the grace and the mercy of another. Right? That's what the world needs. That's what what I need. That's what I need. So we all need to hear what, James, what, we need to heed what James is doing right here in reminding us of who we really are. Reminding us of who we really are. You are not your account balance. <laughs> you are not your account balance. You're not your address. You're not. And neither is the person next to you or the person on the street or the person in the, on the right side of town. Right? It's important for us. We need to as a church, and I'm done with this. We need to as a church, we need to be very, very good, very fragile, agile, very fluent in allowing our trials to drive us straight to who we are and what was done for us. Not to start chasing after things to make the trials go away, but actually chasing over the one, chasing after the one that came into trial for us. And it makes all the difference. It resets everything. It it corrects your perspective. It helps you see yourself better, community better, the world better. It helps everything. We have to be very good at that as a church. You need to be very good at that. I need to be very good at that, right? So as I pray for you, as we pray together, and as we go into the next, in fact, the team can go ahead and come up. As we go into the next portion of our worship where we sing and we take communion, I want you to really focus. I want you to really focus on what your trials are doing to you. Is it casting this identity and this value to you that is besides the gospel? And how is it affecting how you do community? How is it, you might not be a racist by skin, but you might be an economic racist. (laughs) How is that affecting you? Not only is that, how is it affecting your mission, your gospel pronunciation, your gospel demonstration? How is it affecting that?